everyone. Welcome back to What's Next with V. Uh, this is a totally new series. It's the SaaS series. Uh, I'm Vishal Ramaswamy, your host as always. We have a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Puneet Jaggi. Uh, hi, Puneet. Welcome. Hey, hey, Vishal. Thank you for having me here. Awesome. Uh, a quick overview about Puneet. Uh, he graduated from IIT Roorkee in 2010 and jumped into entrepreneurship right out of college. So I think we can hear about that journey uh, in this podcast. Uh, he has built like one of largest uh, India's renewable energy services and went public three years back. Uh, he's just now moved into the SaaS game. Uh, he runs a company called Presento. Uh, Presento is an artificial intelligence powered solar, wind and energy storage SaaS platform uh, that kind of improves performance, uh, clean energy performance by five to 7% and kind of giving a client 10x kind of ROI. So obviously we'll dig deep more into Presento. Once again, Puneet, welcome to this episode. This is episode one of uh, the SaaS series, very exciting uh, industry. So I'm kind of giving it my shot in kind of deciphering, decoding this industry. Puneet, once again, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm extremely, extremely excited to be on the show. Thanks. Great. Uh, just for the viewers out there, uh, just a quick overview of today's podcast. We're kind of going to touch upon uh, Puneet's journey as a founder and obviously a renewable expert uh, in the past 10-12 years of his experience. Then jump on to uh, global trends in SaaS. Can India become a SaaS hub, uh, global SaaS hub? So we just maybe touch upon there. Then jump on to what he does at Presento, uh, top use cases that he's solving and then kind of figure out what's next in that space. So that's the flow for today. Uh, Puneet, jumping right into my first question, would be great if you could share your journey so far as a founder and then touching upon your experience on the renewable space. Sure, sure. Uh, so as you really uh, pointed out in your introduction of me, uh, I graduated from IIT Rudki in 2010 uh, now, I'll be the first to admit that uh, entrepreneurship was not necessarily the only choice that, uh, that I had. Uh, my elder brother had already got into business uh, by the time I graduated, and I had seen uh, one side of entrepreneurship as a result of that. But that said, I had also uh, uh, got the opportunity to go and work at Royal Dutch Shell, which was a company that I had got a job in uh, right out of college. Now. As it happens, uh, Fortune uh, number one company that year was Royal Dutch Shell. So I was actually pretty excited about, uh, about joining it. But uh, these good companies, big companies, they, they tend to uh, treat their people really well. And one of those things in Shell was that they gave us a 100 days breather after we graduated from college and got into uh, the grind of corporate life. They said that, you know, do whatever you want to do for about 100 days, then join us. Now, in that 100 days time, my elder brother got free labor from me. So as a result of that, he put me so much into business. There was no way I was ever going to work anywhere else after that. So when the HR team gave me a call back again that, uh, you know, we haven't heard from you, I really expected to see you next Monday. Uh, that's the time when I told them that was, uh, I've had a different trajectory chosen for myself by now. And, uh, you know, I've decided that I'm going to jump into business, be an entrepreneur. And at a high level, the journey has been very, very fulfilling. You know, the amount of 
exposure that you get, the accelerated learning curve that is there, the wealth creation opportunities that is there. And at the time, uh, you know, I was not married. Uh, I could take indefinite amount of risk. Kind of the journey made sense. So yeah, so that is the humble beginnings of how we decided to become an entrepreneur. And it was a 10 feet by 10 feet kind of an office from which Amolanda had started. Uh, and today we are very fortunate that across all the companies that we have built, uh, we have created value for about a thousand or team members. We have created value for thousands of investors. We have uh, found it very fulfilling personally to create an impact, particularly in the chosen field of climate change or fighting climate change that we have ever only worked for in the last 11 odd years. Awesome, Puneet. Very exciting. I think uh, during 2010, when you graduated entrepreneurship or starting, getting uh, started up uh, from scratch was unheard of. I think that's the time when Flipkart just kind of was building their yeah. business and setting base in India. I think that's a quite a courageous move. Uh, obviously, nowadays, <laughs> it's, it's totally different. Parents are uh, encouraging their kids after college to start. Maybe I've now heard... Uh, college students starting startups right in college, like from second year onwards. So I think sure. good, good science, more or less. Uh, I think more than looking out for jobs, becoming job creators is a totally different experience. And I think it's, I think a way to go for uh, the Indian youth. Fasa Puneet, jumping sure, on, true. jumping up onto your next, I think you've been in, you've been dabbling in the renewable space. Uh, and obviously now recently with Presento in the SaaS space. Just wanted to get your views and thoughts on one, obviously the SaaS, the entire SaaS ecosystem in India. I think it has grown leaps and bounds over the years. Um, and I think following up to that question is, can India become a global SaaS hub? So I mean, the short answer is a big hill, yes. Uh, I mean, we are already seeing some of the best businesses globally being created out of India when it comes to uh, SaaS or vertical SaaS growth. Uh, so the way our industry specifically is structured and the way software is going to play an even bigger role uh, going forward in our industry, let me try to first focus on that a little bit and that will extend to global uh, other domains as well. Uh, what has happened is that in the last 75 odd years, our grid has largely remained unchanged. You know, you're seeing the same uh, polluting power generators uh, that gives electricity to the same transmission lines. Uh, we use the same set of transformers and the electricity comes to our homes or industries. That's broadly been for the last 75 years, the process and it has hardly changed. Now, only in the last 10 years have we seen uh, the uh, upheaval being caused by solar and wind, which is not only greener and much more distributed form of power, but it is also the cheapest source of power that exists, cheaper than coal and natural gas in many parts of the world already, right? So now this is a very disruptive change which is happening on the entire grid. But this is not the only disruption which is happening. In the last 10 years with the uh, depth of internet penetration, with the mobile connectivity going, uh, with cloud computing and cloud storage being omnipresent, this is the second round of disruption that has come across. Now, we are very fortunate that we have seen both of these disruptions happen in our generation in front of our times. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, we created presented to sit at the cross-section of these two disruptions. Disruption in power with disruption in technology. 
and that's how uh, you know the the whole idea around SaaS within renewable energy uh, came about. Now, more specifically on SaaS by itself, SaaS at the high level is software as a subscription or software as a service, right? So, what we do is that uh, we are building a product, and in the product, uh, we invest a lot of time and effort and build something unique, and then we sell it as a subscription piece uh, on a multi-year contract or uh, multi-license contract for different SaaS models. I've got different different ways of doing it. Uh, but fundamentally, what you need as two key components of this is A, a very strong product, and B, a very strong distribution machinery to be able to send it across globally. We are very fortunate that as Indians, we are pretty good at both. Uh, we have been known as some of the best software talent providers in the world. So there is no doubt about that in anybody's mind that people in India and lead the global software companies and now are building global companies out of India as well. Uh, so we are well respected as a community of uh, product builders, as a community of software engineers. Now, if you look at the other part, the distribution channel part, India probably is one of the largest English speaking uh, diaspora that exists across the world. Uh, India is well respected uh, because of its ability to adapt to the country that we are in. And as a result, you find Indians or practically every other place. So one, our promise as software developers and two, our acceptance into the global community as it is gives us a decently good distribution channel. And particularly over the last 11 years, the way Indian startup sector has played out the huge number of unicorns that are coming from India for global markets, it only is adding more fuel to that fire. So that's why what we believe is that global SaaS, uh, considering that two raw materials which are required to be building a good global SaaS is abundant in plenty. Uh, you know, now is the time where India is going to really shoot up uh, in the global SaaS space. And we're already seeing early signs of that. With, with every third unicorn practically coming from some or the other SaaS play uh, built in India, built for the world uh, kind of companies. Yeah, very true, Puneet. Also, I've been doing some reading. So I was just going through a, a McKinsey podcast and they were also kind of um, deciphering the SaaS ecosystem in India. And they mentioned that presently we're at around 2 billion kind of uh, revenue in SaaS. It's bound to grow to around 50 to 70 billion by 2030. Uh, that will be around 5 to 7% of kind of market share globally. Um, investments obviously have skyrocketed to around 4.5 billion in 2021. As you said, I think two main requirements, ingredients for SaaS is distribution and product. I think distribution through the inside sales mechanism, I think most companies sitting out of India are selling globally. And kind of now the product side, we kind of now figured out the product-led growth, right? If you may say. Um, so sure. I think those two components have kind of kicked in and perfect raw materials for, for it to expand. Um, there was another thing that was mentioned on uh, product-led growth. I just wanted to maybe touch upon your views there. How important is product-led growth or product management? Uh, maybe a broader, broader context, product management how important is it in a growth of a SaaS setup? So uh, I came from brick and mortar industry and I did not realize the importance of a product manager back then. It seemed like an unnecessary overhead. So, Somebody who's a kind of a coordinator of sorts, but doesn't exactly. do the real stuff. 
But uh, as some of you may have heard the Steve Jobs dialogue that he said that I don't play anything, but I play the orchestra. Exactly. I think that's kind of the role that the product manager is playing, which is super critical. It's like Being a CEO more or less. It's like a CEO more yes, or less. Yes, but that of the product. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so uh, and, and I think now, considering the uh, pay packages that product managers end up demanding, I believe the Indian ecosystem has realized their importance as well. Uh, you know, it's only the first 15 people, uh, probably when you think that a product manager is an excess, but the moment you scale up a little beyond that, the moment your, uh, your customers start adopting, giving feedback, you realize that this is a full-time requirement that you need. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and that's something that, uh, that I think has gone out well now with multiple Indian startups, uh, and not only startups for that matter, even larger companies. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Product manager as a role is, is crazy important, and product-led growth is a very, very viable, very strong sales channel for many now. Awesome. Uh, Puri, you want to talk about the second aspect that you mentioned, right? the distribution side. Uh, so if you could just lay some thoughts, views on the different aspects that are required. Obviously, you could have an inside sales team. It could be channel, partner-driven. It could be hiring a team in that particular country you want to expand to. So what could be the ideal strategy for a growth stage SaaS company, according to you? So uh, it's very difficult to put all of SaaS in one bucket. There are multiple flavors of the different SaaS that are there. And for each one, the, the go-to market is going to be somewhat different, right? Uh, so we are an enterprise SaaS player, which means that our average contract values tend to be from $200,000 to about half a million dollars uh, uh, in a year for the customer. Um, there are people uh, like, say, Freshworks or Salesforce uh, who might have slightly smaller or smaller CRM companies uh, who have got slightly smaller uh, uh, ticket sizes. But uh, since the number of logos that they can chase is so large, that the market size nevertheless is very, very large. True. Now, this is the one range uh, or one axis in which you can place the different SaaS players. Then there are also horizontal SaaS and vertical SaaS, right? So we are a vertical SaaS player within the clean energy space. And then there are horizontal SaaS players like HR SaaS and CRM SaaS and so on True. that are also there. So for each of these different uh, SaaS companies, the go-to market might wait. For somebody who has a smaller ticket size uh, and needs to deploy an army of account executives at a junior level, uh, hiring uh, uh, account executives and uh, pushing them uh, and giving them enough ammunition with a lot of uh, uh, program marketing is probably a good approach to go. For somebody like an enterprise SaaS player where we need to hit the CXO and the VP asset management and probably three other performance analysts and managers before we can close a deal, it becomes important to be able to sit across the table in the same room with the customer and be able to talk in their terms and then sell, right? So in our case, hiring talent globally to be able to uh, get access to uh, good roller decks as well as good connects at different levels in the organization becomes important. Uh, which is the approach that we have chosen for ourselves, which means that we are getting our VP Europe, we are getting our VP North America, we are building teams under them to make sure that our next phase of growth comes in. Got it. But it's on, um, I don't know whether you're implementing channel or partner-driven like through one of these IT services players in those countries. So is that also an option? Absolutely. This is being 
one of the best options, particularly for companies in the growth stage. So uh, the way I put it is that till the time you do not get three, four, five million dollars in revenue, uh, till that time the first approach, basically feet on the ground or founded selling, all of that works very, very well. Yes. But once you have got a replicable playbook, once you know what is going to work in different parts of the world with different kind of companies, that's the time when you double down on these channels, right? You have got these uh, technical consulting channels like a Capgemini or a TCS or an Infosys or, and so on and so forth, uh, you know, Wipro. Uh, and then you have got other channels like consulting firms where you have got management consulting firms. Uh, you have got other vertical channels also. In our case, there can be different players within the renewable energy uh, scheme of things. So channel sales are a very, very critical uh, piece of growth. Uh, but I would imagine that that would come once you have hit a run rate between three to five million dollars of ARR and then scale up uh, using a channel wherein all the parts of the puzzle are already solved. Now you just That's need true. to give a shot in the arm and help them take off. Makes sense, Puneet. So I think I think rightly put. I think depending on the on the sector you are focusing on. Uh, the SaaS could be maybe anywhere between having a large team of account executives sitting in India, maybe doing emails, outbound emails, outbound calls to enterprise B2B SaaS companies like yours, where you would require to meet the customers, have detailed discussions. So a better way to, uh, to, to go about would be hiring folks in those separate right. regions. Also, what is what is probably relevant to note over here is that uh, typically the first phase of growth, which is say one to five or one to ten million kind of phase of growth, you're still discovering a lot about the different markets that you're going in. True. So you need to be very close to the customer. You need yeah. to have your ear very close to the ground to be able to synthesize all the feedback and make sure that you're offering discovering everything. Got it. But once you have got that muscle built and once your product is able to meet 70, 80% of all new customer requests like this. That's the time when you hit this channel button. But what you also need to understand, what is the typical good growth trajectory for a SaaS startup, right? So good growth trajectory for a SaaS startup is that after hitting a billion number, uh, you get to 3 million the next year, you get to uh, 9 million the year after that, you get to 27 million the year after that, and then 54 and then another eight. So 3x, 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 2x, 2x. We also learned this uh, from a couple of investor friends of ours. Now, if you need to follow that kind of growth trajectory, the one to three and three to nine might still come from direct sales. But yeah. after that, if you want to go to 27 and 54 and 108, it becomes very difficult to do that by putting more men to the ground because you'll end up building 100, 200, 500 people teams, uh, which is probably not the best way. It's much more better if you're able to leverage channels and grow faster on top of them. Got it. Got it. I think that three... Three into three into three into two into two gets you to like a hundred yeah. million in five years. So I think most That's startups, right. most SaaS startups talk about that hundred million ARR in five years. So I think that's a good kind of a good uh, playbook to follow. And I think Puneet, you mentioned playbook, right? So once you kind of figure out one, one million, three million, nine million, I think you would definitely kind of figure out the playbook that would help you reach the uh, 27 and 54 million stage. Absolutely. And, and your product also becomes mature enough to True. be able to handle different pressures from different angles created by different channel partners that you will have. Understood, Puneet. So uh, following up, Puneet, I think now we kind of touched upon 
SaaS and the growth. And obviously we are now on the same page that India is kind of going to be the global SaaS hub. Just wanted to kind of kind of go a little bit more deeper into what you do at Presento. So maybe a quick overview about the product, like a, like a quick pitch as if I'm an investor. So you can pitch that <laughs> and, and maybe touch upon two to three use cases of Presento, top two, three use cases that customers are using Presento for. Sure. So in order to tell you about Presento, it's important that we understand the context of the energy market or renewable energy more specifically. Uh, renewable energy has come a long way, as I mentioned earlier, in the last 10 odd uh, years. Uh, to put this in context, to set up a new solar power plant 10 years back, it used to cost about $2.5 million per megawatt. Today, you can do that in less than a half a million dollars. Wow. Right, So huge reduction in cost and exponential increase in capacities have come up. So much so that about in the last decade, two and a half trillion dollars of investment has gone into solar and wind sector. That's crazy. Now, the kind of investors have changed over a period of time. In the early part of the decade, in 2010, it used to be risk-taking businessmen like you, like me, who wanted to do something in solar. But today, the kind of people who have come in are a lot bigger and a lot more institutional. There are sovereign wealth funds, there are pension funds, there are large oil companies, energy companies, and so on. Now, these people are relatively more risk-averse, and considering solar and wind has entire cost invested upfront, mm. after that, the solar radiation is free of cost, after that, the wind speed is free of cost. The, the biggest risk that your solar and wind investments have is that the plant may not generate enough tomorrow uh, to be able to hit your ROI numbers. It's critically important to protect generation, otherwise your upfront investment may not be able to even pay back the loan that you took from the bank. True. Right. So in order to be able to improve that uh, generation, uh, now considering the plants are spread across hundreds of acres of land, have millions and millions of data points being produced, have got hundreds of thousands of equipment within these plants, it is very important to have a digital solution. You cannot do that manually in Excel sheets. You cannot yes, point yes. out that needle in the heat stack. True. That's exactly what Presento does. We get data from different sites, get that pulled over to our cloud. In our cloud, we run the data science models to be able to pinpoint what initiatives we can take to improve generation. And then we nudge the site engineers and site technicians, the site crew members, by virtue of our Presento mobile app, to take these actions on the ground to improve generation. We improve this generation to the tune of about four or $5,000 per megawatt per year, which is about 10 times the price that we command from our customers. And that's why we are growing at a high rate, have been deployed on 13,000 megawatts across 14 countries, across solar, wind, and energy storage assets. How's that for a short pitch? Awesome, Puneet. I think you'll get more investors after this pitch, hopefully. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, Puneet, on that note, uh, I think you are maybe one of the players out there doing this. How does the competitor landscape look like? Are there any big players out there already doing it? Are there any small players that are coming up? So just want to understand your the competitor landscape in this space. So since this is a software company, anybody with a computer can practically become a player. And with all honesty, even we started as one of those players only. So there are multiple players that are there in any market like ours. Uh, however, there are clear leaders, uh, mostly with the American and European lineage, because that's where solar and wind revolution took off first, and then it came to India. Uh, and, and then there are a few companies that we see in India also who are doing well. Uh, that said, 
what we believe is the differentiator or something that the industry is looking for is that uh, you know all the one plus one is equal to two simple problems are solved it's very easy to get data now from the side to the screen and have sure. that displayed in beautiful charts and graphs and heat map okay. it's the domain knowledge with which you can get an impact on the bottom line of the project which is still something of a uh, blue ocean which is where we are trying to play we are trying to have intelligence powered performance enhancement of solar and wind projects even energy uh, storage projects and creating that as a differentiator there are companies like power factors who are 10 times bigger than us there are companies uh, like also energy which got acquired by an energy storage manufacturer recently so the industry has had some players but there is a lot and lot and lot of juice still left a lot of intelligence lot of integrations that we are seeing now happen to be fair there is a reason for that uh, the intelligence not being built by many of us the incumbents who have been there for a decade and that's because if you look at the timeline of the renewable energy industry in 2010 the biggest problem was getting the cost lower it was not so much about improvement of of uh, generation because True. the cost went down from 2 and a half million dollars per megawatt in 2010 to about a million million and a half dollars by 2015 to about half a million dollars in 2020 right so uh, uh, the the optimization of supply chain to get better price was a bigger problem to solve now in the later part of the decade when the cost actually came down and the subsidies that were required to prop up the solar and wind sector were no longer required that's the time when a lot of international capital started chasing the sector because any time you withdraw subsidies from the sector you know that the sector can stand its own on its own feet and a big risk is no longer there so all of these larger infrastructure investors start coming in so after that the key requirement or the key challenge for these companies operating in solar and wind was that how do you get into that flow of capital how do you tap that flow of capital and become big only in the last 2 3 years have people realized that okay now we have got good efficient supply chain access now we have got a lot of capital access now but how do i differentiate from my neighbor the only way i can differentiate is by be having a better performing plant than my neighbor sure. so even though our competitors had existed from 10 years back but the market was not shouting for this kind of product and when they started shouting the center was also there on the screen so we all had a similar starting line and they did not have the same advantage that we had uh, because of our domain expertise understood so that's a nice explanation punitha where you have mentioned how renewable i mean coming to the cost of setting up a renewable plant how it has reduced drastically just to bring an equivalent to the ev space that is obviously past few years that it has skyrocketed in terms of the industry at the same time if you bring draw parallels costs also have reduced drastically for storage building a it could be storage to the software on the on the storage batteries that go into it and then your cost for actually building a maybe ev car or ev two wheeler as you may say right so i think we're seeing once costs go down you don't need uh, you don't need subsidies from the government the industry can stand on itself and that's when actually the action starts to happen and that's why actually the yeah. software players like you maybe can come in and actually add the differentiating factor so i'm just drawing parallels to that absolutely you know so the yeah. ev space energy storage space is probably at the same level where the solar space was probably 10 years back true and you know people who got into the game of solar 10 years back are today multi billionaires 
True. So I would say that anybody who wants to get into the game of EV or energy storage, now is the time. And you would, of course, it's a, there's some things yet to be played out, but that's True. the name of the game. And I'm pretty sure in the next decade, we are going to find multiple uh, EV and energy storage, multi-billion uh, companies, multiple unicorn companies in this roaming as well. Awesome. I think there are more opportunities to invest as well as investors. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Pretty cool. Uh, Puneet, going on to my last question and actually the theme of the uh, my podcast being what's next. So I just wanted to get your maybe final thoughts on what's next in the renewable space. Uh, in the sense, hydrogen, we're hearing hydrogen coming up as the next uh, renewable kind of renewable energy source. Nuclear, uh, EV, EV space. So what's next in this space and then how Presento could be the solution out there for uh, for this industry? So there are two mega trends which are happening in this space. Uh, one mega trend that is happening is that uh, with the cost of uh, solar, wind or renewable energy in general coming down so significantly and it's becoming increasingly more and more mainstream you're going to see that by 2030, as high as 50% of our power is going to be coming from solar and wind, right? Now, what happens is that uh, when this power was 5%, 7%, 10%, our grids were not getting destabilized. But when 50% of power is going to be solar and wind, and solar and wind are not going to be available 24 hours a day, solar will shine the maximum between 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and wind is even more unpredictable, but you and I as consumers, our consumption peaks around seven o'clock in the evening, sure. right? So that that delta is going to destabilize the grid significantly. So a big part of the innovation that is happening and a big part of opportunity that is there is to be making the solar and wind power available 24 hours a day. And that's where we see energy storage playing a very, very major role. In fact, if my numbers have me right, 70% of the use case of stationary energy storage, which is non-electric vehicle-based batteries, is going to be flattening of the renewable energy curve, flattening of the solar and wind curve, right? So that's one mega trend uh, which is going to play out. And this is also where hydrogen comes into picture, where advanced other chemistries or advanced other ways of energy storage comes into picture so that you can have that power stored in some way and then utilized. The other big angle that is going to happen, which has already started playing out, is that people are trying to wean themselves off from petroleum, uh, from hydrocarbons, from coal, right? So everybody wants to move away from that. There is this increasing realization uh, between all stakeholders that what we have been doing in the last century is not sustainable. And a more sustainable future is not going to be coming because we are going to run out of oil or coal. Uh, it is going to be by uh, bringing in technologies, making them cheaper, helping them scale, which are much more sustainable in nature. So in this entire process, to throw some numbers, a country like India, uh, if $1 of uh, uh, fuel price increases, crude uh, barrel price increases, uh, India ends up increasing its import bill to the tune of 11,000 crore rupees, sure. right? So we want to wean ourselves away from that. And if we want to wean ourselves away from that, then the next replacement is that you throw away the petroleum cars and you bring in the electric cars. You throw away the coal-based boilers and bring in the uh, 
uh, boilers powered by electricity. And this change of electrification is going to be across different industries, right? So the next, uh, uh, the next innovation is also going to start happening around uh, a big change in the pattern of consumption, weaning ourselves away from petrochemical consumption and going more and more towards electricity consumption. So from one side, a lot of innovation will happen generation side with renewable energy coming up in a big way. The other side, a lot of consumption changes are going to happen with electric vehicles and more and more building energy management systems, smart meters, all of that on the consumption side. And there's going to be this middle layer of energy storage, which is going to balance the two equations uh, and make sure that everything works on tandem. And the beauty is, unlike petrol, which is not an easily measurable quantity, every unit of electricity can get so easily managed and so easily controlled so easily measured that software is going to play a very very major role whether that be generation storage or consumption which is the beauty spot that Paseto happens to be sitting in today maybe just one more point and, sure. and uh, this does not uh, talk about the business logic of it there is a moral ethical imperative that our generation carries uh, and that is to try to save the next generation from the aftermath of climate change that will be coming in. We saw NASA scientists uh, literally in tears because of the impacts of climate change this last week when they were trying to say and rather shout that, you know, world, please listen up. This is going to be much worse than whatever else we have seen. If you think COVID was bad, imagine oceans rising and then you'll understand the impact of climate change that we are talking about. So, so uh, I think it's a moral, ethical imperative for us, uh, not only a business imperative to try and make sure that uh, we are able to save uh, the planet and ourselves in the process from climate change, where the whole point of renewable energy, electrification, software, optimization, all of that needs to come in in a major way. Personally, at Presento, we carry a mission to be able to reduce a billion tons of carbon dioxide as a company, which is 2% of the global emissions. So I, there are there are a thousand other percentos that are going to be required, if not million, uh, to make it all possible. Puneet, on that note, uh, thanks once again for being part of the episode one of uh, the SaaS series of What's Next with V. Uh, pleasure having you and hope to catch up with you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vishal. An absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Puneet.